Thank you to Gresham College for the invitation to give this talk. Uh, what I present to you relates to research carried out during the academic year 2020-2021 when I was fortunate enough to be a Fulbright Scholar in the Department of History at the University of Birmingham. Uh, the arrival of COVID in the UK in the spring of 2020 meant that I was unable to give my talk at that time and I'm grateful for the opportunity to present it to you now. My lecture this evening concerns the European Christian religious wars that we know as the Crusades and the Eastern Mediterranean world that were shaped by those conflicts. What were the Crusades? Well, there can be different ways of answering that question, but many historians today would generally agree that Crusades were wars fought under the authority of the Roman Church uh, and it's at its head the Pope against those identified as the enemies of that church and in which participants undertook onerous obligations in the belief that they would earn uh, spiritual rewards. What kind of spiritual rewards? Well, specifically relief from the punishment they believed were due to them for their sins. These conflicts began with the expedition we know as the First Crusade, first announced by Pope Urban II at a church council in Clermont, France, on the 27th of November, 1095. The First Crusade resulted in the conquest of significant territories held at that time by the Byzantine Empire, the ruling dynasties of Lesser Armenia, the Seljuk Turkish Empire, who were the followers of the Sunni Muslim Caliph at Baghdad, and the Fatimid Shia Kingdom of Egypt. The conquered lands were a culturally and devotionally diverse population, including many different communities of Eastern Christians, Jews, Muslims, and Druze. As you see here, uh, the Crusaders made from these lands a network of principalities, all governed by a French-speaking aristocracy. The Kingdom of Jerusalem, the counties of Edessa and Tripoli, the and the Principality of Antioch existed in what are today Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Turkey. A century after the original Crusading conquest, by which time significant parts of these territories, including the city of Jerusalem itself, had been conquered by the Ayyubid Empire of the Sultan Saladin, further expeditions that we call the Third and Fourth Crusades added to these territories the island of Cyprus, the city of Constantinople, and much of mainland Greece and the Peloponnesus. Collectively, these territories are sometimes known as the Crusader States, and sometimes as the Latin East, but are also sometimes known by the terms used to describe them in the Middle Ages. To their subjects and neighbors in the region, they were known as the lands of the Frangoi, or Al-Ifrange, that is to say, the Franks. And to those in Europe, they were known as La Terre du Tremer, the lands across the sea. Crusading was not limited to the Eastern Mediterranean theater. It was closely allied with the process of Latin Christian conquest and conversion in the Baltic region, the subjugation of an entirely independent Languedoc region to the Kingdom of France, and the so-called Reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula. The bloody history of the Crusades is therefore central to the history of Eastern and Western Europe, to European states, institutions, and identities, and to the making of Europe itself. The Eastern Mediterranean region, however, is often seen as the core area of medieval crusade operations and the heart of crusade imaginary and ideology. The earlier crusader conquests proved ephemeral. Despite repeated attempts to safeguard uh, or restore them with further crusades, despite the creation of military monastic orders like the Templars and Hospitallers to guard their borders, and despite the spending of vast sums of money building castles and fortifications like this one, Croc de Chevalier, in uh, Syria, all of these territories were eventually lost to Latin European control. 
The last crusader strongholds on the Palestinian mainland fell to the Mamluks of Egypt in 1291. The Frankish lordships in Greece were finally retaken by the Byzantine Empire in the 15th century, and Cyprus was conquered by the Ottoman Turks in 1570. Nearly five centuries of conflict in the Eastern Mediterranean, arguably the most central theater of crusading warfare, produced no lasting territorial conquests, resulted in countless deaths and enormous expenditure. It is perhaps unsurprising, then, that one of the defining questions that has been asked for centuries about the Crusades is expressed as a question of value. What was it all worth? What attracted so many individuals, communities, and institutions over such a sustained period of time to involve themselves in these costly, dangerous, and frustrating endeavors? So, in this lecture, I'm going to start off talking a bit about this question of the value of crusading. Then I'll move on to the group who are at the heart of my discussion today, the aristocracy. Then, in the final part of my talk, I'm going to suggest a new way for us to think about the crusading experience. We begin, though, with value. And there's no better way to begin this conversation than with this image from the frontispiece of what some might consider to be the earliest modern history of the Crusades, the history of the Holy War by uh, the English cleric Thomas Fuller, published in 1640. This opening image in Fuller's book depicts a tableau of the Crusades, represented as groups of European Christians setting out on the left-hand side on their journey from the Church of Europe to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the tomb where Jesus Christ's body had lain. Following over to the right-hand side, we learn that this had led to death, loss, captivity, and confusion. Europe is flanked by two purses, one reading, we went out full, and the other, but return empty. A plinth at the bottom left, bearing the Jerusalem cross, reads, we hope a gaining, and the one on the right, bearing the crescent moon, reads, we hope a wanting. Fuller explained the whole scene in a poem. Those that escaped came home full of grief, as the poor purse is empty of relief. Above the map are portrayed two men who Fuller identified as heroes of this history. The crusader and first ruler of the kingdom of Jerusalem, Godfrey of Bouillon, on the left, and the sultan Saladin, who conquered the kingdom's capital at Jerusalem in the year 1187, on the right. The heroism and indeed chivalry of both men, which is something that is fully explained in the text of Fuller's book, is clearly associated with the picture, uh, in the picture with their disregard for precious things. Godfrey is ringed by the words, no crown of gold where Christ was crowned with thorns, uh, a reference to his refusal to adopt a royal title during his reign, while we are told on the right-hand side that this black shirt is all that the Sultan Saladin, conqueror of the Near East, took with him to his grave. Gain and want, full and empty, crown and thorns, empires and rags. For the Protestant cleric Fuller and his reader, the tragic story of the Crusades was closely allied with these notions of value and its acquisition. A little over a century later, the French Enlightenment encyclopedist Diderot d'Alembert offered a searing condemnation of the Crusades. He wrote, it might have been difficult to believe that there would ever come a time of such great darkness and such great obsession on the part of the people and their sovereigns acting in their interest that they would lead a part of their people into an unhappy little region ultimately to slit the throats of its inhabitants and seize a rocky outcrop worth not one drop of blood and that they might have venerated in the spirit from afar uh, as, just as well as nearby and the possession of which was alien to the honor of their religion.
What was it worth? These writers of the Reformation and the Enlightenment were rather clear on that point. But this opinion did not hold for long. With the advent of major overseas European colonial empires in the 19th century, popular attitudes toward the Crusades began to change. In the 19th century, Romantic nationalism, which found Europeans looking to the medieval past for a new sense of collective identity, together with colonial conquests in North Africa and the Middle East, led to a surge of interest in the story of the Crusades. As early as 1824, uh, readers of the popular novelist Walter Scott were imploring him to include more content related to the Crusades in his novels of Romantic chivalry, leading to the release of his bestseller, The Talisman. And readers wanted to be part of this crusading world. Those that fancied themselves members of old families shopped for literature that would confirm their ancestral involvement in crusading ventures, like James Crickshack Danzy's English Crusaders, organized uh, so that you could easily find your surname, coat of arms, and proof that you went on crusade. In France, the association between the new nation of the Second Republic and the Crusades was built into the very fabric of the Palace of Versailles, with the installation of the Crusade Rooms, the Salle des Croisades. The conflation of medieval crusading with modern colonial experience also exercised a powerful influence over the academic study of the Crusades. As European powers established their new empires in North Africa and the Middle East, their medieval philologists, orientalists, and archaeologists conducted surveys to triumphantly reclaim the knowledge of the crusading past. From this triumphalist, colonialist position, the value of the Crusades was almost self-evident in the value of of the overseas colonial project itself. Part national destiny, part romantic fantasy, and a powerful source of medieval legitimation for modern white European global domination. Even as robust critiques of colonialism emerged in Europe, and European colonial empires began to break apart, the colonialist interpretation of the Crusades carried through the later 20th century, with critics of European colonialism and opponents of the establishment of the modern state of Israel eager to invoke a backward, brutal, medieval intolerance of the origin point of modern overseas ventures. Jamil Baroudi, a Lebanese-born diplomat who represented Saudi Arabia at the United Nations, was famed for his contrast between what he saw as Western and Zionist uh, imperialism and the medieval colonialism of the Crusades, which he said concealed undeniable economic and political ambitions under the cloak of religion. Anti-colonial invocations of the Crusades are still common in contemporary political discourse today coexisting with the rising adoption of the Crusades among white nationalists around the world, a founding mythos for a supposedly ongoing clash of civilizations between Christianity and Islam, and legitimizing, in the eyes of white supremacists, horrific violence against non-white, non-Christian peoples. Discerning what relationship, if any, that conquest and settlement at the medieval crusading frontier had with the more modern patterns of European colonization is a daunting task made more difficult by the fact that the very fields of history and archaeology in question were fundamentally shaped and facilitated by colonization and European imperialism. Certainly, our sources suggest some intriguing parallels between the crusading past and later European colonial settlement. The Latin East definitely featured economic exploitation of the local population, It featured increasingly intensive agricultural exploitation of the land in favor of high-value cash crops like cotton and sugar. There existed in the Crusader states, as across the Mediterranean at that time, 
chattel slavery, and harsh punishments existed in the Crusader states for miscegenation between Latin Christians and Muslims. The role of the Roman Church, which seized the opportunity to extend its dominions over Eastern bishoprics, displacing in many cases the existing Eastern patriarchs, is certainly a case of what my Fordham colleague George Dimakopoulos has called colonizing Christianity. Yet the Latin East also resists comparison with familiar colonial patterns. The Latin states were not established by, nor were they beholden to, any particular colonial power. The Italian trading republics, most notably Genoa and Venice, but also Pisa, Lucca, and Amalfi, did, not, did benefit through their commercial partnerships with the Crusader kingdoms, signing lucrative agreements with the princes who, who relied upon them for naval power and occupying their own quarters in the major towns of the coast. And their profit from these conquests must clearly be related to the larger story of commerce and colonization that later emerged in the Western Mediterranean, in Africa, and the Atlantic world. But in this case, they were not the principal conquerors, nor the rulers of the land. Never more than a small minority, the Italian traders and French-speaking lords never convinced waves of European settlers to come and join them in what one observer actually called Holy Christendom's new colony. The apparent failure of the materialist explanation has led historians in past decades to turn away from the emphasis on material benefit that was at the central to much of the colonialist interpretation to one that instead focused on the religious principles of crusading. In this formulation, the very lack of any prospect of material gain is critical to the demonstration that crusading was overwhelmingly a devotional exercise. Taking the cross as a crusader demonstrated the individual's desire to suffer as Jesus of Nazareth had potentially on the very ground where his feet once stood and where, in the apocalyptic fulfillment of scripture, they will ultimately stand again. It has recently been suggested by my Fulbright host at Birmingham, William Perkis, that the devotional use of the holy places of Jerusalem by pilgrims, and particularly the acquisition of sacred relics from the sacred sites, was a kind of extraction of wealth from the territories in question. In other words, Scholars are beginning to find new ways to imagine this frontier, in terms that, while they might not have been familiar to previous generations of modern historians, are more in concert with the culture of the Crusaders themselves. Yet there may be other ways to imagine the value of this frontier, and to see how that value was extracted. To do so, we need to remember that the group primarily implicated in the establishment and sustenance of the Crusading project, more, uh, more so than Venice or Genoa, more so even than the Church, was the European landed aristocracy. At first glance, it may seem difficult to credit a collective enterprise to such a disparate group. After all, they had almost no direct communication with one another, uh, came from different regions and different political contexts, and spoke different languages. Importantly, in precisely in the period shortly before the First Crusade, these aristocrats began to develop a shared culture, which over the course of the first century of crusading went from a loose sense of shared ideals to a codified set of behavior and expectations. We associate the medieval European aristocracy with a number of powerful cultural forms, including courtliness, courtly love, and chivalry. And you can see manifestations of all three on, on the, this beautiful casket from the British Museum. All three of these were really components of a larger revolution, the widespread adoption of a shared concept of nobility. Europe had always been ruled by elites of various kinds, but nobility was a distinctive hereditary social class theoretically determined by birth, but always demonstrated or enhanced by behavior. Nobility was expressed in manners, gesture, clothing, speech, 
Uh, it was de demonstrated in specialized knowledge, for instance, about hunting practices or the new mythology of the heroes of the romances of King Arthur. For men, principally, it was also expressed in new expectations surrounding military conduct and the specialized skills associated with equestrian combat. The nobility rapidly developed an arcane visual language of identity, that is, heraldry, their own rituals like dubbing to knighthood, and their own forms of literature, uh, including both imaginative fiction, manuals of aristocratic conduct, and, as in this manuscript, songs of love and devotion. As we have seen was the case with Thomas Fuller in the 17th century and the romantic writers and artists of the 19th century, the link between crusading and the aristocratic culture of chivalry has long been acknowledged. In fact, crusading and chivalry are so firmly bound that it is sometimes difficult to separate them. This was certainly the case with Geoffrey Chaucer, whose portrait of the knight at the beginning of the Canterbury Tales lists as evidence of his inherent qualities his participation in crusading conflicts in Egypt, Asia Minor, Algeria, Prussia, Spain, and Lithuania. And in fact, Chaucer mentions that the knight had only just returned from his most recent voyage. Fundamental, then, to finding the answer to our original question, what was crusading worth, is understanding what the value of crusading might have provided within the economy of noble status. Enhancing or even just sustaining noble status required tremendous investment and continuous maintenance in the form of public, public displays of wealth, wisdom, uh, taste, loyalty, and again for men mainly, prowess, the proven ability to perform well in combat. The public, personal, embodied nature of noble status is everywhere we look in the political culture of medieval Europe. From the construction of great halls for gathering, entertaining, and feasting, and elaborate parks and landscapes for hunting. When medieval aristocrats could not be around to embody their power in person, they left behind images of, them, of themselves in their personal seals, performing actions like fighting, hunting, and sitting in judgment. In death, they were no less concerned to leave behind an image of their performance of lordly status. What all this performance yielded them was not material wealth, but what sociologists would call cultural capital, marked out by material culture around them and embodied within them in their very behavior. Perhaps the most important place for the performance of noble virtues and the acquisition of cultural capital was the tournament. The tournament was an elaborately staged spectacle, the enactment not only of martial prowess, but the display of courtly manners. In the 13th century, tournaments were assigned imaginary settings, such as famous scenes from Arthurian literature, and filled with heraldry and other markers of identity. Now, tournaments were condemned from their very inception by the church, who repeatedly anathematized those who took part in them or organized them. But by the early 13th century in England, not only were the tourneurs themselves, but anyone who gave them lodging or sold food and drink to them were also threatened with an excommunication. Yet... The medieval aristocracy, the same group who piously responded to calls for penitential crusading moors, paid these threats no heed at all. On the contrary, as the ideal stages for the demonstration of prowess, tournaments only grew in size, frequency, and sophistication. One of the chief reasons stated for the prohibition on tournaments was that they interfered with the aristocracy's obligation to go on crusade. But not only did the nobility disagree that crusading was incompatible with tournaments, Repeatedly across the 12th and 13th centuries, we find nobles and those that rode for them describing crusading as a tournament. In fact, the earliest crusade recruitment song written in a vernacular language, 
which you have here on the screen, referred to the upcoming expedition as a tournament between heaven and hell, set up by God and to which his friends were invited. In 1203, a nobleman who was also a famous tournament promoter, Count Hugh IV of Saint-Paul, wrote a letter to a friend while on crusade that not only described the undertaking as a tournament organized by God, but which also stated that it was only crusaders answering this call who could truly be knights. And we find the same sentiment that the Eastern Mediterranean frontier represented the preeminent stage for the acquisition of honor and virtue ringing on down the centuries in treatises of noble conduct and chivalry. Another type of evidence also speaks to the desire to see crusading as an opportunity for aristocratic performance. From the time of the Second Crusade forward, popes and papal legates put in place strict rules governing what could be brought on the expedition. Those who fight for the Lord, they said, ought not to care for precious clothes or elegant appearance or dogs or hawks or other things that are signs of lasciviousness. Pay no attention to multicolored clothes or minivers or gilded or silvered arms. Like the prohibitions on tournaments, these rules seem to have been totally ineffective. No less a figure than King Philip Augustus of France arrived at the siege camp on crusade in 1191 with his white hunting falcon. His fellow crusader, King Richard I of England, carried with him not a simple soldier's blade, but a sword that he believed to be Excalibur. We know from the pommels of swords captured from crusaders in Egypt that these too were special weapons adorned with their personal heraldic devices. That crusading represented an opportunity for elaborate public display is also what potential crusaders were promised in imaginative literature. Epic poems about the First Crusade, like the massive song cycle centered on the climactic siege of Antioch, imagined its protagonists protected by the finest armor uh, that bore their heraldic arms, uh, some carrying golden tents and weapons and hunting horns belonging to ancient heroes. Attired and appointed precisely as ideal knights, the crusaders of these epics engaged in closely matched combat. They score great blows with their weapons, bravely endure repeated trials, give sage advice to their allies and leaders, and demonstrate their Christian devotion. The experiences reported by those who participated in crusading conflicts, however, suggest that the major expeditions that we name and number as crusades were not ideal contexts for the kinds of noble performances that they may have imagined and desired. The ultimate goal of nearly all crusade campaigns was the conquest of large, heavily defended fortresses and cities. Participation in these campaigns, therefore, implied siege warfare. This was the warfare of specialist technicians, uh, uh, engineers, the operators of giant siege engines, crossbowmen, and increasingly professional bodies of men-at-arms and sergeants. We find a crusader like John, Lord of Joinville, the Seneschal of Champagne, bewildered when he is asked one night on campaign in Egypt in 1250 to guard the wooden siege engines from attacks with incendiary missiles. When open battle at last came for John, outside the Egyptian town of Montserrat, he led his knights in one attempted charge. While he managed to lance one man, killing him, he quickly found himself surrounded and pulled down from his horse, unable to draw his sword. Forced to take shelter in an abandoned house, he held the reins of the horses while his household knights did the actual desperate hand-to-hand fighting. It was not impossible under these conditions for knights to win renown for themselves, but it was extraordinarily difficult. And John of Joinville illustrates the tension that existed between the desire to perform as a noble and to exhibit prowess and the strategic aims of the campaign. He tells the story of another knight, 
Walter, Lord of Autrèche, who on the same campaign had himself armed at all points in his pavilion, when he had armed and mounted his horse, a shield at his neck and a helmet on his head, he had the pavilion flaps lifted and spurred on to charge at the Turks. As he left his pavilion, all alone, all the members of his household cried Chatillon at the top of their voices, but it so happened that he fell before reaching the Turks and his horse galloped over his body. Walter died, and the next day, King Louis IX of France, leader of the expedition, was heard to say that, quote, he would not wish to have a thousand such men since they would not want to follow his orders, unquote. The story of Walter of Autrèche raises a last point about the problem of crusading as a source for prowess for European knights, and that is death. Joining large-scale crusade expeditions like the one led by Louis IX of uh, France in Egypt in 1250 was an incredibly dangerous enterprise. Some estimates put the mortality rate at about 40%, although it could have been much higher in some cases. A knight like Walter was fortunate, in fact, to have even made it to the battlefront. Many other crusaders would have died of disease in the crowded camps in southern European ports or uh, in the siege camps surrounding the cities they had assaulted or they might be lost at sea in the hellish conditions of an overcrowded galley. The body of the eager Walter of Autrèche was at least recovered. The same could not be said for the bodies of countless knights that John of Joinville described floating in the Nile following the battle, unidentifiable because their faces had been eaten off by burbot fish. The body of the king's own brother, Robert of Artois, who died in another foolhardy cavalry charge, was never recovered at all. These fates may seem unpleasant to us today, but within the noble regime of lordship, where, remember, the body of the lord, and certainly knowledge about the lord's fate, was central to its basic operation, these cases of death, captivity, or disappearance at great distance, when bodies uh, or information could not be returned, was disastrous. We find noble lords sending their signet rings, as here in the life of St. Elizabeth of Thuringia, and asking for their bodies to be embalmed, boiled, and brought home. But despite these efforts, local lordships and even whole principalities were thrown into disarray when a crusader's fate could not be confirmed, or worse, when crusading lords or impostors claiming to be them returned home suddenly after five, ten, or even thirty years. Major crusade expeditions, like the ones we've described here, were quite infrequent and frequently disastrous. Fantastically expensive, slow-moving affairs, they required their participants to subject themselves to command structures involving higher lords or even crowned heads, who might be alien to the feudal networks uh, from which the crusaders came. Unsurprisingly, they were bedeviled by political tensions and personal rivalries. They also invariably resulted in strained relations between the crusaders and the rulers and populations of the Latin eastern states they were in theory defending. If this was the normal experience of crusading, then we would have to conclude that beyond the spiritual value of suffering in the Lord's service, crusading could not have represented, as our aristocratic sources so often claim, an ideal stage for the demonstration of noble virtue and the acquisition of honor and status. And that is why it is critically important for our understanding of the value of crusading, and especially for the value of the crusading frontier to medieval Europeans, that we recognize that this was not, in fact, the typical experience of crusading. Crusading, in fact, was a continuous phenomenon. Throughout the long periods in between the large-scale campaigns, members of the aristocracy were frequently departing for the crusading frontier. A UK colleague, Dr. James Doherty, and I have begun to compile a database of the departures in between the numbered expeditions. 
While a comprehensive list is probably impossible, just the examples that can be identified amongst the territorial princes of Europe before 1187 gives us a sense of the frequency of these journeys. So this, for instance, is a timeline showing the traditional uh, canonically numbered uh, 12th century crusades. And this is a, the same timeline, including uh, all of the individuals we can identify among, just among the territorial princes of Europe who undertook independent expeditions in the same time frame. Now again, these are just the territorial princes. Our database re actually reveals participation in these journeys from a much wider social group, ranging from humble knights to the highest aristocrats. Uh, it's a substantial list of individuals drawn from a considerable swath of Latin Europe. We find that the phenomenon was essentially continuous, that it often reflected a local initiative, and that it was not uncommon for individuals to undertake multiple such journeys in their lifetimes. One further point arising from this last one is that these journeys seem on the whole to have been much safer for their participants than the canonical crusades. These expeditions have long been overlooked because they are generally classified as having a range of explicit purposes, a pilgrimage, an embassy, an intelligence gathering operation, etc. But when we look closely at them, especially at the documents that mark their de the departure of these people, they do not describe their own journeys any differently than they would crusades. Stories about their expeditions were told in Greek, Arabic, Armenian, French, Latin, and Old Norse histories, some of which, like uh, these ones, uh, describing the crusading adventures of a knight from the southern Low Countries, are essentially unknown to generations of historians of the Crusades. The Crusoe Chronicles can be supplemented with works of imaginative fiction. As it turns out, when writers wanted romantic tales about aristocrats on crusade, they most often described this phenomenon, the noble sojourn, rather than large-scale campaigns. So what did aristocratic participants do uh, on what I'm calling here the noble sojourn? The first element of the journey was to visit whatever holy sites were available to pilgrims at the time of their journey. Uh, as high-ranking visitors, our travelers were specially received by the clergy who managed the shrines, and in addition to adoring the holy places, the guests would make special gifts, sometimes including precious objects brought with them specifically for this purpose. Now, the importance of the spiritual component of these journeys cannot be overstated, but neither can the importance of the performance of lavish, aristocratic displays of generosity and piety, which were part and parcel of them. Once the pilgrimage was complete, the visitors would be received at the courts of the Frank their Frankish aristocratic cousins. I mean that figuratively, although of course sometimes they were literally the cousins of the, uh, the, the rulers of the Frankish East. Some of the most famous portraits of the Eastern Frankish aristocracy were penned by European clerics who decried their lascivious lifestyles, their dedication to the pleasures of the flesh, their cavorting with prostitutes, and their ambivalence about religion. But the image cultivated by the Eastern aristocracy themselves is quite different. They produced a staggering volume of writing in their Outremer dialect of Old French, dedicated to the correct ways to plead, that is, to, to request judicial rulings before one's aristocratic peers at the noble courts of Jerusalem and Cyprus. They also wrote treatises on proper noble conduct and chronicles about their, uh, about their kingdom, again in French, that were read and copied widely in Europe. Visiting Westerners participated in the discussions that led to the composition of these works and were cited for their wise opinions on feudal custom or their deeds in the defense of the kingdom. Some visitors, like the knight Robert de Boron, seem to have carried away with them new literary forms and traditions. 
It was the Latin Eastern Noble Society that inspired the very first formal guide to becoming a knight, the Orden de Chevalerie, which imagined the Frankish lord of Tiberius instructing the Sultan Saladin, here seated wearing a crown, in the knighting ritual. The interiors of the eastern palaces can only now be surmised by archaeological remains of isolated castles. But one visitor to the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1211, Wilbrand of Oldenburg, did leave us with a detailed description of the palace of the powerful Ibelin family at Beirut, recently constructed, he said, by Syrians, Saracens, and Greeks. It had what he called a delicate marble pavement simulating water agitated by a light breeze, walls covered in marble panels, a vault the color of the sky, and a pool with a fountain shaped like a dragon that provides air conditioning and a relaxing sound. Wilbrand wrote that the water, quote, lulls to sleep by agreeable murmurings its lords who sit nearby. I would willingly sit by it for all my days, unquote. Noble visitors to the Latin East were not just passive consumers of the architecture they encountered. Many of the monumental structures, from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, dedicated in 1159, to the new royal palace constructed a few years later, or the formidable fortresses of the military orders that had been supported precisely by gifts made in the West by powerful aristocratic patrons, they traveled through a landscape that they had helped to build. Over time, visiting aristocrats had yet more active engagements with towns and fortifications of the East, as the constructions of castles, walls, and towers became one possible component of the journey. Croc de Chevalier, for instance, was directly funded by King Andrew II of Hungary in 1219 after he was received there as a guest. The castles of Safad and Atlit were constructed by Benoit d'Alignon, Bishop of Marseille, and Walter Lord of Avennes during their respective sojourns. The phenomenon continued on the mainland through at least 1287, when Alice, daughter of John I of Brittany and widowed Countess of Blois, expended enormous sums of money on a major tower at Acre during her own noble sojourn in the city. Accounts written after the fall of Acre to the Mamluk Sultan al-Ashraf Khalil in 1291 still remember the tower as the Tower of the Countess of Blois. Wilbrand's description also noted that the landscape surrounding the Evelyn Palace uh, was filled with meadows, orchards, and most delightful places that were visible from its windows. What he described is, of course, not just nature, but the built landscape, aristocratic space set aside to enhance the architecture and power, uh, but also uh, for outdoor pursuits. Works describing the construction of the castles of Safat and Atlit make specific mention of the game available for hunting in the lands around them. Hunting was a central element in the way aristocracies both in Europe and the Near East articulated their status. Participation in royal hunts allowed aristocrats to show their closeness to the ruler, and individual hunts were a chance to bring down high-status animals, trophies that reinforced or even elevated the status of those that chased and killed them. In establishing their feudal principalities in the Levant, the Franks came to occupy a land whence their own royal hunting practices had first emerged millennia earlier, and where hunting remained a critical component of the political culture. In the Kingdom of Jerusalem, a royal hunt in which the king was joined by his court, including prominent visitors, was underway by at least 1143, when King Fulk died while hunting hares during his royal itinerary. Fulk's son, Baldwin III, participated in hunts together with the Byzantine emperor, Manuel Komnenos, in 1159. But the fact of a royal or princely hunt, which after all was common in Europe, 
was probably less significant to Western video visitors than the methods of hunting and the objects of the chase. The Near East was home to a wide variety of megafauna, unfamiliar to Europeans. Some of these animals, such as lions, leopards, oryxes, gazelles, and a large number of bird species that crossed through the region in migration, were prey for the hunters. Others, such as cheetah and caracal, were caught and trained as hunting animals in the same way that Europeans traditionally used hunting dogs. A richly illustrated copy of Opium of Apamea's Cenegetica, as you see here, was made in Constantinople in 1059 and reveals uh, the wealth of opportunities in the form uh, of animals and different hunting practices available to hunters in the regions of Syria and eastern Anatolia. The most important eyewitness observer of the hunting culture of the Crusader states was the aristocrat and avid hunter Usama ibn Munkid, whose family were the lords of Shaizar in northern Syria. The castle of Shaizar was located just beyond the territory of the princes of Antioch, and in his later career as a courtier and diplomat, Usama moved between the world of, his Muslim, of the Muslim princes of Damascus and Egypt and the kingdom of the Franks. Usama's stories point to a thriving market in hunting birds and, and mammals, and to a strong desire on the part of Europeans to hunt large and to their eyes exotic megafauna. He recalled the story of the unfortunate Frankish lord, Adam of Hunak, who asked Usama's help in locating a leopard to hunt. The, ultimate, the animal ultimately killed him. Nothing attracted the attention of visiting crusading lords, however, like the opportunity to hunt lions. The English chronicler Matthew Paris included a detailed and illustrated anecdote in his Chronica Maiora, describing how, among other marks of the virtue and boldness of the English lord Hugh de Neville, he killed a lion in the Holy Land. In 1251, near Caesarea in Palestine, the crusader John Joinville encountered a recently arrived small crusading expedition, led by Elnart Asselnian, who immediately took up hunting lions and caught several. Hunts for lions and other types of game like unicorns also proliferate in the Romance traditions concerning visitors to the Latin East. It would be fair to ask at this point if in the midst of all this courtly visiting, sightseeing, and hunting, the noble visitors who I'm calling crusaders ever did any fighting. Well, the nobles who undertook these journeys certainly came prepared to fight, but the types of violence that they encountered traveling apart from the major crusading expeditions were qualitatively different than what we usually associate with crusading warfare. In between periods of heightened conflict, the Kingdom of Jerusalem and its neighbors experienced long periods of relative peace, allegiances, or even condominium, the joint rule of specified lands between Jerusalem and Damascus, for example. In their respective journeys undertaken in 1157 and 1177, for instance, the father and son crusading counts Thierry and Philip of Flanders both undertook a limited type of fighting in the same region of northern Syria around the castle of Harim outside of Aleppo. Both raided the area and engaged in skirmishes with the lord of Harim's forces. Philip's fighting at Harim is particularly noteworthy because he undertook it while a major battle was taking place in the kingdom of Jerusalem against Saladin, who had invaded. Philip deliberately avoided this larger engagement to participate in the smaller, more limited, and doubtless safer one. We can compare this skirmishing to the increasingly high-stakes military conflict that was taking place in Europe, as monarchs called upon the knights and lords to help centralize and strengthen their claims against one another. We can also compare it to the brutal scenarios that unfolded in the course of major crusade campaigns. These small-scale raids and border actions would have constituted a much more appealing way for knights to carry out socially and clerically sanctioned violence associated with crusading 
and also to produce memorable and visible evidence that they had done so. The accounts of the visitor Manassas of Vierge uh, notably claim that he would ride across the borders, making raids into enemy territory. They say, quote, he went beyond the border of the kingdom of Jerusalem, traversing the neighboring lands of Egypt, Damascus, and Antioch. Frequently, with swords bared, he displayed the banner before the Damancedes and Egyptians and carried it back, happily stained with the enemy's blood, unquote. I began this discussion of the European nobility and their quest for distinction by pointing to the popularity of tournaments. The great stages of aristocratic performance where nobles would go to see and be seen and therefore reaffirm their social status. It's important to point out then that the Latin East was also the site of a number of famous tournaments. Tournaments are first attested in the Principality of Antioch at the remarkably early date of 1159 when they were witnessed by the Byzantine Emperor Manuel Komnenos. The emperor was so keen on this form of sport that he wanted to import it to Byzantium, and an anonymous contemporary document records the lavish clothing that he later wore in jousts, affirming that he understood their importance as courtly political performances as much as they were military games. In 1223, a tournament was staged in Cyprus in which participants dressed as members of the round table, and this is in fact the earliest attestation for this type of tournament that would later find great popularity in Europe. The popularity and frequency of tournaments in the Latin East is also suggested by the fact that the old French customary treatises include language warning knights that if their horses start to go lame thanks to too much tournamenting, they have only themselves to blame. And just a quick note about this jousting image. It's from an old French collection of stories from antiquity, but it's uh, particularly relevant to our discussion because this image was actually painted by artists in the Latin East at the famous manuscript atelier in the city of Acre. Lavish tournaments continued to be held in Greece at Corinth and in Cyprus, long after the last outposts of the Latin states on the eastern Mediterranean mainland had been conquered by Mamluk armies from Egypt. The descriptions of later medieval travelers and texts from Frankish Greece show that visitors were still coming to these courts to participate in tournaments, to hunt, and to fight. The aristocratic visit to the crusading frontier had been adopted and perfected by the crusading order of the Teutonic Knights, who organized their journeys, their horizon, to Lithuania along the lines of what historians have described as package holidays for the nobility, complete with a table of honor, heralds to compose songs about their feats, and special certificates or badges of participation. At the European princely courts, for instance at Burgundy, the past and future of crusading had become a central component of court pageants and performances, beginning a tradition of the theatrical enactment of crusading that can be witnessed in much later and in radically different contexts, such as Spanish-occupied Tlaxcala and Mexico City in 1539. The later medieval pageants and Riza are often seen as perversions of crusade, turning away from the more serious geostrategic military endeavors of an earlier era. But as we have seen, there is in fact a bright thread to this performative, theatrical element of crusading that runs right through the many centuries of crusading history. And this type of activity was one that continued to yield value in the maintenance of European aristocratic power and status. I began this lecture with the image of the Protestant Thomas Fuller's Holy War, the frontispiece that suggested the great expenses and terrible slaughter of the Crusades amounted to a moral lesson for Christian Europeans. They went out full, they came back empty. But the question of the value of the crusading experience in the Middle Ages to European communities and institutions has, I think, been muddied somewhat by the imprecision about precisely which communities we're talking about and about the full extent of the crusading experience. It also leaves out the role of the Latin states to that experience. 
What I hope to have shown is that for the aristocracy, the principalities of the Latin East indeed provided a rich resource of the kinds of cultural capital that was the very stuff of their social class and status at home. The aristocracy of the Latin East presented their lands as an idealized world of noble customs and behavior, an origin point for the mythic past of chivalry. The value of the principalities was embedded not only in these people, but in the architecture constructed with the assistance of European noble endowments and in the landscape itself. This extraordinary map, created in England in about 1240 and wonderfully restored by our students at Fordham University, demonstrates much of what we've seen was important about the landscape of the Latin East. It includes an, iti an itinerary showing how to get to Jerusalem and how long it would take via sea. In addition to the holy places around Jerusalem, it also mentions numerous other pilgrimage sites elsewhere in the region. Uh, the map also includes specific references to lions in the same region where we know they were hunted by crusaders, and it also indicates the mythical home of hunting birds on the summit of Mount Gil Gilboa. Remarkably, and this is incredibly rare for a map of this period, it shows political borders, the presence of a frontier with the kingdom of Egypt to the south and Syria to the north and east. What the map records, then, is precisely the value of the Latin East, this land conquered by crusading and which crusades sought to sustain and also to cultivate. In its confident claims to Jerusalem and the holy places, it reflects the value of crusading in a way that might have been understood to all Latin Christians. But in its insistence on the political identity of this place, on the existence of its frontiers with lands governed by non-Christian rulers, and its inclusion of other kinds of information, for instance about animals for collecting and hunting and architecture, it affirms the particular value of the Latin East for an aristocratic audience. Now the images I painted for you of European aristocrats traveling to lands of overseas conquest to learn and to demonstrate their virtues is one that has obvious resonances with later periods, particularly with the grand tour of the 17th and 18th centuries, with the expeditions and safaris of the 19th century European overseas empires, and with more modern tourism. My hope is that by modifying our understandings of the full range of experiences and objectives associated with crusades, and by thinking about the desires and requirements of particular social groups, we come closer to contextualizing the entire history of the crusades, and especially the ephemeral crusader states, within the larger story of European colonialism and also global history. The value in comparing elite practices of the Central Middle Ages to later periods, however, is not just to help us join the dots on a flattened historical landscape. Contrary to the desires of modern European colonial elites steeped in medievalism, the Crusades were not just a practice run for later European empires. Contextualizing the violent history of the Crusades within the social and cultural world of the Middle Ages, a world very different to our own, is also helpful when confronting the motivations and justifications for those who would do violence for reasons of religion or identity today. More often than not, those who look to the Middle Ages uh, to justify the intolerances of today find only a mirror which reflects back our own troubled image.